We have seen an interesting contrast, haven't we, between two characters, Abraham and Lot. Abraham, a man who walks by faith. Lot, a man who walks after the flesh. We saw how Lot loses everything. He longed for Sodom and he got what he wanted, but he really didn't get what he wanted deep inside his heart, and that was his satisfaction. The world glittered to him, and so he wanted what the world had to offer. But spiritually, he was very dry. He is a person who had a saved soul, but a lost life. Do you know people like that? They're saved because they're saved by God's grace through an act of faith. But you look at their lives, and it is an absolute ruin and shambles. They have decided to walk on the edge so much... So carnally, they have just tangled up their lives to the extent that it's just a mess. A saved soul, but a ruined, lost life. I'll never forget a radical statement made by a biblical commentator on the radio. And as radical as it was, there was a bit of truth to it. He said, I have seen lives so messed up by sin so entrenched in sin, so given over to disobedience. And they've twisted relationships and so many failures. And it's, they, then they come into the counseling office, which it's so messed up. He said, it's just an enigma. He said, probably the best thing that could happen for that person is for them to die and go to heaven. Because to get out of the mess is just going to be, they're going to live with so many consequences. Probably the safest thing. Now, he wasn't encouraging that you kill them or that a person commits suicide. But just that sin has the ability to ravage a life and leave it in ruins. Remember the old saying, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy? That's true spiritually. You can take a person out of the world and God can save that person but a lot of times the world can remain in that person and they can live sort of a Christian life and sort of a worldly life wanting the best of both worlds. Well you can't do that. Lot lost it all. He lost his home. He lost the city that he loved that he was living in. He lost his family. He lost his witness. He lost his integrity. Abraham didn't lose anything. He was living in fellowship with God in Hebron, the plains of Mamre. He got a good night's sleep, woke up in the morning after he had prayed with God. God had judged and destroyed the city, and there it was smoking in the distance. Lot had been saved. The last time we see Lot in chapter 19, he's living in a cave, and his daughters go into him to commit incest. Just a dark, ruined life in shambles. Now, the next chapter, chapter 20, it's one of those chapters you wish weren't in the Bible. Because Abraham, we just got through seeing him in great light. A man interceding for Lot. Praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, if there's 50 righteous, would you spare it? Yes. And all the way to 10. Praying interceding, standing in the gap. Now you see another lapse of faith. You know, Abraham's life is much like our life in that we have peaks and valleys, don't we? 
We have times where, man, we're just soaring with the Lord. And then there are other times where it's just nosedive. It's like a Duncan yo-yo. You're up one minute, down the next. Up the next, down the next. Not really consistency. Abraham, this example of faith, (laughs) is now becoming an example of unbelief for us. So in chapter 20, it says, Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar, down in the Gaza Strip. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, here it goes again, same sin he did 30 years ago, she's my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Remember that bumper sticker? I think it's still around. Um, It says, Christians aren't perfect, they're just what? forgiven. Interesting bumper sticker. It's true. It's very true. But it's also sometimes a cop-out. And especially when it's on a car, it's almost a license to speed. You know, I see that on a lot of cars that are doing about 80 miles an hour. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Don't tell that to a policeman. He doesn't care. You're forgiven by God, but not by me. There was a uh, clergyman in New York City that was driving his car round and round in circles to find a parking place. He couldn't do it. Finally, he parked in a no-parking zone, and he left a note on the windshield that says, Hey, you know, I've parked here for 10 years, but today I couldn't find a parking space. Forgive us our trespasses. Came back to find a ticket on his windshield that says, I've also, from the policeman, a note that said, I have also perused this area for 10 years. And I've given tickets out for 10 years. Lead us not into temptation. Gave him the ticket and stuck with it. It seems that we battle with three areas. Now, we all know what it's like to battle with the devil. In fact, a lot of us will blame the devil for lots of things. And... uh, The world has its allurements and attractions, but there's another enemy called the flesh. And we're out there saying, the devil did this, the devil did that, we're fighting the devil, when the real problem could be our own flesh. We have an old nature that we battle with, and we have propensities in our old nature. We have habits and patterns that seem to resurrect. And just when we think we've gotten the victory, the old man knocks on the door. The old flesh nature says, here I am, rears its ugly head and tries to have a grip on us to bring us down to living on a carnal level. Abraham, 30 years ago, went down to Egypt and to the Pharaoh said, this is my sister, Sarah, which was a half-truth but also a half-lie. She was his sister in the sense that they had a common father but not a common mother. A sister in a sense, but very truly his wife. However, since Abraham would be in a position where he could be killed because he had such a beautiful wife, he decided to have his wife lie in Egypt. After that whole episode, God showed himself strong and appeared to him several times and said, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, 30 years after that episode, he does it again. The same fallback, the same lapse of faith. You know, what happened to remembering the lesson that God taught him? 
I am your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. Okay, God, I got you. But he falls back into that same fleshly uh, manner of living. We struggle with the flesh like Abraham. Now, will you ever reach a place in this life where you don't struggle with the flesh? Never. I wish that I could tell you folks that there is a plateau. I wish I could say, I finally met a perfect Christian. I met one just the other day. He doesn't sin. He doesn't think evil thoughts. He's reached that plateau of ultra-holiness. And I wish that I could say that's something for you to look forward to in this life, but I have never met one. I'm not there. If you know me, you will say amen to that. Amen. Hey, shh. That was my wife who said that. <laughs> you just don't reach that plateau. You're always struggling. Paul the Apostle, for many years, all his life, struggled with the flesh. Now, I know that there are people who teach that you can arrive at a level of holiness in this life. And I've never met one who has, although I've met people who said they have, think they have. Charles Spurgeon, that great British preacher, said, I once met a man who claimed to be perfect. And when he was having the conversation, his friend said, what did you do when you met him? Spurgeon said, I tested him. He said, I, this is true, I poured a pitcher of water over his head. He said, and the man swore. And I said, aha, you're not perfect. Abraham is having this lapse of faith once again. Not perfect. Um, why he left Hebron, the trees of Mamre, we are not told. Why he left the fellowship of God, we are not told. Probably he was curious. Uh, he was tired of living by the promises of God. Who knows? But he's now going down to you know, the edge of the border of the land down in uh, Gerar. It says, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. I still find it interesting how that though Abraham is living in the flesh, God is still being faithful to his promises to protect him. What a wonderful God we serve. That even when we act like an absolute nincompoop, as my mother used to call it. God is still faithful. When we are faithless, He's faithful. How I love the gospel of grace. I have had God bless me when I least deserve it. William Newell says, the place of a man under grace is to expect God to bless him, though he does not deserve it. When was the last time you expected God to bless you when you didn't deserve it? When was the last time you said, Oh, I'm such a failure. I'm so disappointed with myself. You're disappointed with yourself because you trusted in yourself. But I, I've been, there have been times in my life where I've been such a jerk and God has blessed me sometimes in the greatest capacity when I least deserved it. I think, God, what are you doing blessing me? You shouldn't bless me at this point. I didn't read ten chapters. I didn't pray this long today. I didn't witness. I'm going to bless you anyway. 
Now, that kind of grace and blessing will then drive me to the throne in repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. I love that about God. And he blesses you when you least deserve it. I wish that you would learn to expect that of God. So many of you, I know, live under the guilt and the pressure and live in a works kind of a relationship. You think, well, I've done good, therefore God should bless me. I've done bad, so I can see why God wouldn't do it. But sometimes God will reverse the tables. What is interesting to me is that Sarah is 90 years old. And she's still beautiful enough for Abraham to worry about her. She must have been a knockout. <laughs> Seriously. 90-year-old gal. Hey, I'm afraid you're so gorgeous that he might rip you off. He might kill me, moreover, so we better pull off that lie again and say that you're my sister. This was a sin that he failed to deal with in the past. It's the kind of sin that you just push out of the way but don't crucify. Now, when we don't deal with our own passions and our own hang-ups, whatever they are, particularly in your life, they will come back and revisit you. And God wants you to deal with them. Isaac wasn't born until this time that they finally dealt with it. We often push stuff aside, don't we? Think, ah, no big deal. Just... My father in our house had one room that he called his office. It was actually just a junk room. If you walk into it, I bet even today you would see piles of stuff that he will get to one of these days. Just put it in that room. Now, it's organized garbage. You know, he's got it from 10 years back, 20 years back, 30 years back. It's organized, but it's just never been dealt with. It's just push it aside. And it just drives my mom nuts. She says, Lou, go in there and do something about that room. I will, I will, I promise. One of these days. Now, we can do that with sins in our own life. We don't deal with them. We don't crucify them. We don't mortify the flesh and they revisit us. They come back only to have a stronger grip on us the very next time around. Now one of the problems with Abraham is the fear of man. He was afraid. Well, let's just read it. He'll say why he's afraid. God came to him. He said, you're a dead man. Verse 4, But Abimelech had not come near her and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And she even herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I have also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Ooh. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. Now, Abimelech's probably thinking this time, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's going to pray for me? He's a jerk. He's a man of God. I don't know if I want him praying for me. But if you shall not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Have I now offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely 
the fear of God is not in this place. And they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. You know, he say, well, you know, technically. And she became my wife. Saying, well, it's half true, but a half truth is also a half lie. The problem that he had was that he was afraid of man. Should he have been afraid of men? In the natural, yes. But should he have been afraid of men after all that he's gone through? No way. He saw what happened to Pharaoh 30 years before. God personally appeared to him and said, I am your shield. I'll protect you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. The Bible says the fear of man brings a snare. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes a meaty message. And he says, Am I now the servant of men, or do I now fear men? For if I was afraid or of men or tried to please men, I could not be the servant of Christ. The fear of man can bring a snare. It can stop us from doing the will of God, from living in righteousness and in the integrity of truth. Now, do you remember, in contrast to this, the three Hebrew children, the three Hebrews in the book of Daniel, who when Nebuchadnezzar put up his image in the plain of Dura and said, everybody bow, they stood up straight, they were threatened and said, bow or burn, they said, we'd rather burn. God's able to deliver us. We're not going to bow down to your flaky image, though. We love and we serve God. They stood up. Imagine how difficult it was to stand up in the midst of a crowd where everybody was bowing in idolatry. It's just as difficult for you to make a stand in a world that is not bowing toward Jesus Christ, but bowing to the pleasures of this world. It's difficult, isn't it, to stand out in the crowd? But oh, how we need people who will not bow down, but will bow down to Jesus Christ. It is, it's hard to go against the flow. I love that song, Any Dead Fish Can Float Downstream. Now Christians, it's, it is a temptation to be squeezed into the mold of the world. I know that. In our society, being a born-again Christian is not a popular kind of a thing. Now, 20, 25 years ago, it was popular. During the Jesus movement, it was a fad. In the 60s and 70s, everybody was doing it. It was sort of just cool to do it. And people thought, oh, it's kind of a cool fad. I'll become a Christian. More and more, though, however, the lines are drawn today. You become a Christian, you will be labeled as unpopular. So our tendency is to fit in. We want to be cool. We want them, hey, if we're going to be a Christian, we've got to be at least a cool one. You know, so at least we're kind of accepted and the world goes, wow, you know, you're kind of, you're a hep, born-again Christian at least. There can come a temptation with that to sort of make that line of integrity of worshiping the Lord God only very, very fuzzy in what we do. And we have to be careful because of it. I'm on the wrong page. Now, in verse 9... Notice Abimelech rebukes Abraham. It is a sad day when the world rebukes a child of God. Remember Jonah. Jonah ran away from God. Finally, Jonah confesses his sin. 
He says, you know, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven, and I ran away from him. And they said, why have you done this? The world rebuking a child of God. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view? Abraham has a flaky excuse, rationalizes it in verse 11. But indeed, she truly is my sister. Okay, verse 13. It came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me in every place where we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So they made a deal a long time ago when they were newlyweds. Honey, do you love me? Oh, Abe, I really love you, Kate. One favor, one little promise in this marriage contract. You're gorgeous, and wherever we go, they could kill me because of you. So will you promise to love me till death do us part and lie for me whenever I need you to do it? Sure, baby. I'll do it for you. I love you so much. So he's reminding, or he's telling Abimelech that it's a deal that they've had since the beginning of their relationship. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. A nice way of saying, Get out of my sight. To Sarah he said, Behold, I give your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before all others. Thus she was reproved. And so Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his maidservants. And then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife couple lessons before we move on to the next chapter. Number one, you're not safe in this world. You are not safe. We must always be on our guard. There's always the tendency of our flesh to be brought into the allurement by the devil with the things of this world. Just because you've had victory in the past doesn't mean that it will always go away. It can resurrect itself and we must be on guard. We must be awake and uh, sober and not sleeping. Um, my wife was watching a movie this afternoon, a John Wayne movie, and, uh, you know, they're pretty predictable. But in one scene where John Wayne was having a fight, I just happened to walk through the room, and John Wayne's having a fight, and that's kind of a highlight in film history whenever John Wayne has a fight, because, again, it's predictable. John always wins the fights. And uh, John Wayne, in this one scene, as they were going back and forth, knocked this guy right in the mug and he fell backwards and landed into, in a river. And everybody's looking at this fight and, and the guy knew that he had been lost, that he lost the fight and that he'd been licked. And so kind of in his humiliation, he looks up at John Wayne and says, all right, I admit it, but at least let's shake on it. Give me your hand and help me out of the stream. So he gives him his hand. John Wayne pulls him up, and so he's disarmed, having one hand pulling up his foe, at which he takes the other hand and smacks John Wayne in the face. Now, the enemy will do that. You'll get victory. You'll be moving ahead in the Lord. You'll be leaving him in the dust. and thinking, All right, I'm growing in the Lord, man. I'm spending more time in concentrated fellowship with the Lord than I ever have before. I'm making such victory. The enemy will admit it. All right. You're not doing the things you used to do, but let's shake on it. Like the guy, this is a true story actually, he was being chased from state to state by the police. 
And finally, he went into another state where that police had no jurisdiction over him. And they were meeting at the state line. And the criminal looked over and said, hey, I'm in this state. You have no jurisdiction over me. The authority said, you're right. I admit it. You won fair and square. Let's shake on it. They shook. He brought him back over into the state line in which he was. And so he arrested him. Kind of a stupid thing for the criminal to do, but we can do the same thing. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. I love that verse of scripture. God said, God spoke, and so God did what he said. Abraham was 100 years old at the time. Sarah was 90. Sarah conceived. Now imagine, 90-year-old woman, and her stomach begins to get enlarged over the months. And if you remember the story we said a few weeks ago, that caravan, perhaps, that was going back and forth to Egypt, who thought that Abram was crazy when he said, My name is Exalted Father, and now my name has been changed to Abraham, Father of a multitude. Really? Well, where's your kids? Well, I don't have any. Well, how old is your wife? Well, she's in her 80s by now. And then now she's 90. But when they came back to see that woman pregnant, you know, especially nine months. Ninety-year-old woman, God had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, laughter. Isaac, that's what laughter means. That's what Isaac means, laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God commanded him. Now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God had made me laugh, so that all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age? When God told Abraham that he was going to have a son, <clears throat> Abraham laughed out of sheer joy and belief. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15. The first time God told Sarah... She was going to have a son. She laughed out of unbelief. She went, Pfft. she didn't even laugh out loud. She laughed in a whisper. She said, I'm old. It's impossible. God heard the laugh of her heart and said, uh, Abraham, why did your wife Sarah just laugh? She said, I didn't laugh. God said, you did too. Don't lie. You laughed. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, when she finally got pregnant again, she really laughed, this time out of sheer joy, because the promise was fulfilled. The first was a laughter of unbelief. The second was a laughter of belief. She probably thought about what God said for the next few months. When he said, I will be around this time next year and you'll get pregnant. She probably took long walks at night, looked at the stars, contemplated them and said, you know what? He's right. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. If this is God, though it's impossible for humans to have babies this old in life, God can do it. All right. I'll trust him. I'll believe him. Now she laughs out of pure joy. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. I'd like to stop for just a moment and compare an analogy between Isaac and and Jesus Christ, which I hope you'll see more and more as we get into chapter 22. There are some interesting parallels between the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jesus Christ. First of all, both 
births were promised by God. God said to Abraham, you're going to have a son. It's my promise. It's a covenant that I'm making. God also promised a son to Mary and promised to Israel the Messiah. Secondly, there was a long interval between the promise and the fulfillment. Twenty-five years for Isaac to be born. Twenty-five years before Isaac was born, God promised it to Abraham. A couple thousand years before Jesus was born, the prediction was made. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and she shall call his name Emmanuel when the child is born. And so we see a parallel. Thirdly, um, the announcements of the birth were incredulous to the mothers. Remember, Sarah couldn't believe it at first. She laughed. Mary, when she heard the announcement that she would be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, she said, how can this thing be, seeing I know not a man? It was an, an incredulous promise that she received. Fourthly, both children were named before they were born. You will call his name Isaac. God promised that they would call, told him to name that, and, uh, which meant laughter. And they probably thought, laughter? Why would I name my kid that? Now they find out why. Fifthly, they were both loved with a special kind of love by their father. In chapter 22, God says to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son whom you love. Actually, he had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But God said, Isaac, your only son whom you love. There was a special kind of a love because he was the son of promise. And Jesus is called the beloved of the Father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Both are given that title. Um, sixthly, they had a miraculous birth. How many 90-year-old women do you know that have babies? It was a miracle. And the birth of Jesus Christ was also a miracle because it wasn't by natural union of Joseph and Mary, but she was conceived by the Holy Spirit, never again repeated in history. Seventh and finally, the child who was born, in both cases, was obedient unto death. In chapter 22, Isaac obeys his father in the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And Jesus, as we're told in Philippians 2, is obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in the garden he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so, verse 8, The child grew and was weaned. Weaning takes place between the age of 2 and 3 years old. So they're having a party for little old Isaac when he's about 3 years of age. So they made a feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. He's over there in the corner making faces at him. Because all of the attention now is on that second child. Now, some of you can relate to this who have several children. Firstborn, no problem. All of a sudden, number two comes into the family. And number one takes second place for a while. All of the attention is given to that newborn. You have to change its diapers and nurse and Oh, isn't it cute? And that little number, that number one child who used to be number one in attention is now getting a little bit jealous. So Ishmael is mocking Isaac. Before we move on and look at this mocking and what happens, I like to see parallels, spiritual parallels in any kind of historical 
uh, story in the Bible. Isaac was breastfed until he was two to three years of age. Now it's time for him to grow up. There's a rite of passage. The weaning is taking place. No more milk. It's time for you to eat like a normal kid. It's kind of a celebration that shows that you're growing up. Christians ought also to grow in the same manner. At first, Christians who are born again like milk. They get off on milk. And you should. The Bible says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you can grow thereby. But there comes a time when a Christian needs to be weaned off milk and grow up and become mature. For the writer of Hebrews said, Everyone who drinks milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. And mature food or strong food belongs to those who by reason of use have exercised their senses with good and evil. You know, at first, a young Christian is content with Psalm 23 and John 14. They read the Psalms and a little bit of Matthew, a little bit hodgepodge through the Scripture. But a Christian needs to grow up and read all of the Bible. And I think one of the marks of maturity is being weaned off milk and learning the whole Bible. Studying all of the Scriptures. Learning the whole content of the will and the Word of God. It's time to... Once you're weaned, to get off of the milk and go on. Therefore, verse 10, she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman, Hagar, who had Ishmael, and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Now, Ishmael's a teenager by now. Abraham loves him. Spent 13, 14 years with him. Now she says, get rid of her and her son. She, oh, man. She said, that, you know, she said that one time before. And so Abraham did that, remember? And God brought Hagar back into the family. Well, now she says it again. But God said to Abraham, now it's different, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah had said to you, listen to her voice. For an Isaac, your seed shall be called. Now, the first time, God rebukes him for listening to his wife. Shouldn't have listened to your wife. Now he says, listen to your wife. It's a rite of passage, not only for Isaac, but for Ishmael. It's time for him to go on. Let his mother raise him. Let him grow up. He's old enough now to take some responsibilities for himself. And it was the age for a Jewish or, or for a Semitic young lad to take responsibility. So, go for it. Yet, verse 13, I will also make a nation because of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. Now, Isaac and Ishmael in the same house illustrate a truth for you and I. Isaac, the son of promise, is fighting Ishmael, the son of the flesh. Even as you and I have two natures within us, a fleshly nature and a spiritual nature. And they're fighting with each other, aren't they? The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And they don't live in harmony well together. If you're trying to live a life pleasing to God, but at the same time live entrenched in the things of this world that are opposed to the spirit, it won't work. You can't serve two masters. You've got to crucify, mortify the flesh and live after the things of the spirit. It just won't work. 
A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread in a skin of water, putting it on her shoulder, gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba down south in the desert where Bedouins still roam to this day. And the water in the skin was used up. She placed the boy under one of the shrubs. She went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him, lifted up her voice and wept. Now you've got to feel sorry for this whole uh, event and feel sorry for her. Her only son's out there and he's, they're out of water and you know, he's dying and the water's used up. She's weeping. Oh, what's going to happen? God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, <laughs> Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Sort of a dedication. Lord, here he is. He's yours. I dedicate him to you. I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness, and he became an archer. So that's a singing group that he was in later on. Now, that was, he was obviously a hunter with bows. It's an, you'd have to be a Christian several years ago to understand that one. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So he uh, married an Egyptian, became a hunter with bows and arrows, and now the scripture will drop the lineage of Ishmael. Though he'll crop up from time to time, his lineage is set aside, and God is now concerned with Isaac the son of promise, and um, his genealogy will now be counted for us. came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Of course, they probably looked a little cross-eyed at him. I mean, can you really believe this guy? He lied twice in the past. He lied to them once. And Abraham says, I swear. They were probably looking to see if he had his fingers crossed. And Abraham reproved Abimelech. <laughs> Wonder how much integrity he really had to do that. Because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor... Had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called the place Beersheba. Because the two of them swore an oath. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, El Olam. A designation of God unique only to this passage. And Abraham journeyed in the land of the Philistines many days. Beersheba means one of two things. It can either mean well of the oath, 
bear, well, sheva of the oath, or sheva also means seven in Hebrew. Echad, shtayim, shalosh, arba, chamesh, shesh, sheva, seven. Be'er sheva, well of the seven, you lamb. So, uh, you know, it's one of either, there's, believe it or not, been a debate about that for a long time, which it means, I don't think it really matters, do you? So let's go to chapter 22. Now, chapter 22 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. It's one of the mountain peaks of Scripture. It is a scripture that not only is one of the greatest tests of Abraham, but it's prophetic of what would happen to Jesus Christ thousands of years later. Up to this point, Abraham, though he has had lapses of faith, has grown in faith. He's passed three major crises, three tests. The first crisis was when God called him out of his home. He said, leave your land. Or of the Chaldees. Go to a place that I will show you. Leave your home, leave everything, and split. And he did. Eventually. He didn't do it all at once. He was partially obedient. The second test is when he was called to leave uh, Lot. And he brought Lot with him from his homeland, but there was a time when they were splitting up, and that was hard for him. But he passed the test. Lot went down to Sodom. Abram stayed in the land God called him to stay in. The third crisis and test was when he had to let go of his son Ishmael, and he passed the test. This is the fourth test, and it's the greatest test. It is a test of extreme suffering because God will say, take your son and sacrifice him upon the hills of Mount Moriah. You know, I hear an unfortunate doctrine that is not based in Scripture, but it's very popular. It's the doctrine that says God does not want his, ch his children to suffer. Suffering is not God's will for a Christian. Yeah. How do they get that? They obviously can't read the Bible. They, they can't read through the Bible and come up with that teaching. As I read the Bible, the Bible is centered on sacrifice and suffering. We worship a suffering, sacrificing Savior. And they're almost on every, in every chapter of the Bible speaks of suffering of God's people. But it's become a doctrine. God wants you prosperous. God wants you rich. Brother, claim it by faith. You don't have to be sick. If you're sick, you're living a Satan-defeated life. All you have to do is claim the promises of God. Garbage. Heresy. Absolute false teaching. And it makes people who are not instantly healed, even when they claim it by faith, guilty. Feeling, I'm a crumb. I don't have enough faith. If I did, I'd be healed. Well, brother, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be in that cast. Really? You sound like you've got an awful lot of faith. Let's use yours. Abraham is called into the deepest form of fellowship now, and that is the fellowship of suffering. Remember what Paul said, Oh, that I might know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Now, the first part of that, many Christians would say, I agree with. The power of his resurrection. Amen, brother. I'm into God's power. But they'll stop with that. 
the verse goes on to say, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Christians who do not suffer are very shallow people. They're very shallow people. Some of the deepest people I've ever been around and I enjoy their fellowship are Christians who have walked with God through deep suffering and have come out the other end not bitter but better. Because God not only gave them trials but shoulders to bear it. I like hanging out with people like that because I know that the sun and the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Abraham is called into the fellowship of suffering. It says it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. It was a test we read about. The word test in Hebrew is nasah, and it means not to tempt, but to prove the worth of something, the value of something by suffering. The test seems contradictory, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like a contradiction? Now, you've waited for 25 years, and miraculously, I provided this son for you, and now I want you to kill him. (laughs) God, wait a minute. That's illogical. Abraham must have thought about that in his mind. You promised me this son, and against all odds, here he is. Now you want me to sacrifice him? What am I going to tell Sarah? Uh, Sarah, I don't know you're going to take this, but God wants us to take your son, my son, and kill him. Should we do it? Have you ever been in that place where something happens in your life that seems so contradictory? You think, what is God doing? Why would God allow that? I mean... Everything's been going great, and it seems like God was in this thing, in this event. And now look what's happened. It's so illogical. Why would God do that? But what might seem illogical to you is perfectly logical to God. Moreover, it's theological, and God calls for your obedience. And so it was a test. And as we said, the word test means to strengthen or to prove the worth of something. Now, it would be good for us to learn an important lesson. There's a difference between God's testings and Satan's temptings. God does not tempt any man with evil, the Bible says. Satan does tempt. God will test. Satan's tempts to trip you up, to cause you to fall. God tests to build you up and to strengthen you. He has your highest good in mind. Though God will even allow Satan's temptations to test you and to build you up. He knows your limitations and he does it for your good. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Second thing I'd like you to notice is the word, it came to pass. You say, now, why should I look at that? Because it represents 20 years of time between chapter 21 and 22. You say, so what? Here's the so what. Before God tested him, He prepared him and strengthened him for 20 years. It was a time, those 20 years, of blessing. Abraham was born. I mean, Isaac was born. He started growing. He was being nurtured and nourished. Abraham probably took long walks with him in the evening, telling him of God's faithfulness and God's promises. 
saying, Isaac, have you noticed anything different about mom and dad? Well, no, mom and dad, what is it? Well, we're a lot older than your friends, moms and dad. Have you noticed that? Yeah, you do have a lot of wrinkles. Well, let me tell you why. I was 100 years old when you were born. You're out there hobbling with a cane. Your mommy was 90 years old. That's an impossibility. But God did this. For 20 years after the lapses of faith, now this man's finally growing strong in the Lord. The truth is this. Before God tests you, he will prepare you for that test. Satan comes out of the blue, slams you from the back. God prepares you before he tests you. There is often a time of peace, a time of spiritual growth and spiritual success enabling you to handle it. There will come tests. Every child of God who grows more and more in relationship with God will undergo great testings. I've had times of testings. Now, the last several years for me have just been times of just, it's been awesome. It's like a dream. What God has prepared for me in the future, I don't know. I'm not worried about it. I know that whatever the test is, God will have prepared me sufficiently to encounter it. Father knows best. But God prepares his servants before he tests his servants. Thirdly, notice that God touched the absolute most sensitive area he could in Abraham's life. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. No, not Isaac. He's the most precious one I, I have. He's my most precious relationship. Yeah. Go take him and sacrifice him. What is your Isaac? Do you have an Isaac? What is your master passion? Don't be surprised if God calls upon you to give it up. I'm not saying he will. I'm not saying, oh no, now God's going to take somebody in my family. God may or may not. But he'll ask you if you're willing. He may touch your master passion, whatever it is that's the most important. He might say, are you willing to give it up? Do you love me the most? You see, love is not tested by words or flowers or cards. It's tested by sacrifice. What are you willing to give up to prove and to show your love? In any relationship. You know, I marry couples almost every weekend. Sometimes two, sometimes three on Saturdays. And I, I get off on it. I love it. But I'm also aware that most of those couples are very selective in what they are listening to when they say their vows. They hear the words richer, better, instead of worse, poorer, and sickness. They don't think about sickness or poverty or things that could happen. They do not think about the sacrifices they may be called upon to nurture that relationship. That's why they say a promise, a vow. They don't say, I will stick with you until I feel a little bit differently about you or somebody else better comes along. No, it's until death do us part, I will be your husband, I will be your wife. You have to make a commitment because you don't know what's going to happen. Love is always tested by what you're willing to give up and sacrifice. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Take him to the mountain of Moriah, and they're sacrificing. I could cite examples. Billy Graham tells a great story where he was uh, dating a gal. In fact, I think he was engaged to her at one point. He said she was a 
gorgeous young woman. And I wanted to marry her. But he said, I wanted to go into the ministry. She didn't want the ministry. And he said, it tore at my heart. And as I took it to the Lord in prayer, I felt like the Lord was telling me, keep your priorities. I'll bless you. And so he said, honey, I'm going into the ministry. She said, well, I'm not going into the ministry. I said, well, we're breaking up. My priority is to serve God. And so they broke up. It was shortly after that that God blessed Billy with his wife, Ruth, who's just a dynamite and the perfect match for him. Perfect match. God may call upon you to sacrifice a relationship. When my wife and I were dating, I asked her, first of all, to, uh, you know, years before I, I asked her, you know, we were boyfriend and girlfriend and we were dating and then I dumped her. And uh, it was just because, not because I, I thought that I was something more special, just because I was afraid of commitment. And I thought this could lead to a real commitment, a long-term marriage commitment. So I said, well, I don't think God's called us together. And uh, a couple of years elapsed, finally she... Uh, came back into my life and I asked her to marry me. Two weeks after I asked her to marry me, I said, Lenya, I don't think we can go through with this. I don't think I'm ready. And she's thinking probably, oh, what a flake. <laughs> you did this to me before. Now I moved all the way from Hawaii to California. You asked me to marry you. I'm making plans. And then you think, well, I don't think, you know. And it was a tough couple weeks after I said, I think we should stop the wedding plans. We're not going to get married. It was very hard. We talked it out. And I just said, no, I'm just not ready. I just don't think I can do it. I'll never forget the evening she came to me and she said, I prayed about this and I've resolved that if I am not God's best and highest for your life, I don't even want to be married to you. Because I love you so much, Skip, that I don't want God's second best for you. And if I'm God's second best, I don't want to marry you. I want God's highest. So I release you to the Lord, and I pray for God's best and highest for your life. I thought, wow. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that to me before. I've never heard anybody love and like that. Oh, let's get married. <laughs> and she probably thought, well, I don't know if you're God's highest for me. <laughs> she didn't verbalize that. young man came to me years ago and we were over on uh, Eubank and he came up after a service and he said, I'm considering making a commitment to Christ but I'm afraid. My parents are staunch Roman Catholics. We are so close and they would resent me doing anything except the traditional structure that I've been raised in. If I make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, I know how that will change my life. I've seen it change others. And it will divide me and my parents. He said, what should I do? I said, what do you think you should do? What would God have you to do? Every relationship, as difficult as it, as difficult as it might seem, <laughs> must take always second and third place to the relationship you have with God. You know the answer to that question. Jesus said, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And it's a consequence. It could happen. It may not, but it could happen. You have to count the cost and then make the right choice. There's a cost in every decision. When I left, it could be a place besides a person. I remember when God called me to leave the house on the beach where I was living. 
I mean, I was in Huntington Beach, and I'd walk every evening up and down on the beach, and the seagulls were flying around, and the waves were crashing, and I'd have my quiet time every morning and every evening. Have a great quiet time with the Lord, then I'd get my board, wax it up, jump in the ocean, surf for a couple hours, go to work. And I said, Lord, I love it here. If you ever call me out of here, I want to let you know, I'm willing, but I also want to let you know it's going to be very difficult. I really don't want to. And I remember what it felt like when God said, time to go. I said, all right, I'll leave. But it was tough. God touched that very thing that was very difficult for me to leave. My love for the ocean. He said, sacrifice it. All right, I don't know if you'll bless me for this. And I look back and what God has done said, you can have the ocean. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Verse 4, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young man, Stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and, and worship, and we will come back to you. Did you hear that? We will come back to you. Isn't that the words of faith? God just said, take your son and sacrifice him. And yet he says, hey, uh, we'll be back. We'll be back. You see, Abraham is living by faith. And if you read Hebrews chapter 11, I wanted time to develop all this. It says that he believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead. So when he said to the young lad, we're going to go and worship and we'll be back, he meant it. God, I can't figure this out. I mean, you have a track record of keeping your promises. Here's my son. You gave him to me. Now you tell me to kill him. It can mean one of two things. I serve an erratic God that's not worth serving. Or number two, if he's dead, God will raise him from the dead. Because God said through him, Isaac, all the world will be blessed. And this man will carry my seed. So God has to raise him from the dead. He says, well, we'll go yonder. We'll worship. We'll be back. Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went together. Only problem with that is God did not provide a lamb. He provided a ram caught in the thicket. What Abraham spoke was prophetic. Let's go on. We won't finish it all. I'll just touch on a few things. Finish it next week. They came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar, and there placed the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar and upon the wood. Now, right now you're thinking of the great sacrifice of Abraham. Think about Isaac. He wasn't a little kid. He was in his 30s. Scholars say between 30 and 33 years of age. And as an adult, he allowed himself to be bound, obedient to the point of death. Son, I don't know how to tell you this. But you are the sacrifice. I'm going to lay you on this altar, and I'm going to plunge this knife into your heart. I don't know why, but I've got to obey God. All right, Dad. Now, I don't know the interchange between them. Uh, the emotion must have been... Very high at that point. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. 
He said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, nor do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from him. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, or Yahweh-Yireh, depending on how you pronounce it, depending on what part of the country you're from, which means the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, literally, or shall be provided. Now consider this. The first time the word love is ever used in the Bible is chapter 22 of Genesis, where God says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Notice how the word love is used. It is used of a father giving his son as a sacrifice. And notice the phrasing, Take your son, your only son. He wasn't his only son. He had Ishmael. But this was the son of the promise, prophetic of God taking his only son, whom he loved. And then he said, take him to Mount Moriah. Interesting place. Mount Moriah is the place where the temple was built, where Arana had a threshing floor that David bought. Solomon put a temple on it. It was the place Abraham almost sacrificed his son. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, we'll close with this. I am fascinated. I could go on for another hour, but we won't. But real quickly, if you go to, uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem today and you stand on the Temple Mount, you're on the top of Mount Moriah, a place where the temple stood. A place where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. But if, as you look on the temple mount to the north, you notice that Mount Moriah slopes in elevation upward. If you were to walk to the very tip of Mount Moriah, first of all, you'd see a street that was dug out by the Jews for the wall of Jerusalem to be built an open place where that has been dug out. But the very peak of Mount Moriah is an interesting place known as Golgotha, the tip of Mount Moriah, Golgotha. Before the temple was built, the topography of the land was hills and valleys. So when Abraham saw the top of Mount Moriah, it probably was not the Temple Mount where the Mosque of Omar sits today, but Golgotha, which is the very pinnacle of Mount Moriah and brought him up to the top of Mount Moriah. He said, take your son, your only son. He was about to sacrifice him, but he didn't. And the name of the place is, the Lord will provide. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. God, uh, Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. Now when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist recognized him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Moreover, Isaac was dead to Abraham for three days because God said, Sacrifice your son, and they walked three days' journey. On the third day as he's sacrificing him, the angel restrains him. He was dead in his father's mind for three days. The third day was a resurrection day. On the very exact same mountain where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, where the first time love is used in the Bible of a father sacrificing his son, is where Jesus Christ was sacrificed for your sin by a father in heaven who loved you enough 
to not restrain this time the death blow to his son because his son was the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Thousands of years later it was seen as the lamb of God was sacrificed for the sins of the world and three days later he was risen from the dead. That's what the book of Galatians means when it says God preached the gospel to Abraham in the past. Think, what? It was prophetic of his only begotten son. We'll finish off next week. There's some more thoughts to bring out. Maybe we can show you some topography of the, of the area of Jerusalem. Maybe we'll have a uh, structure of the temple. I'll try to remember to bring that and we'll uncover it. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at how the Holy Spirit has pieced together the scripture. We're amazed that the first mention of love speaks of a father giving his son in sacrifice. We're amazed that it was the same mountain upon which our Savior was sacrificed for us. And we see how that from the beginning, suffering and substitute in atonement was always your plan. From the very beginning, you chose your son, slain from the foundations of the world to be our sacrifice. How we are amazed at your love for us, Lord. We're amazed, Lord, that you loved Abraham so much to protect him and overlook those faults and call him a man of faith. But we're most amazed that in your love you did not restrain the crushing blow of death against your son, but you let him be killed, suffer immensely, so that our sins could be paid for. Lord, I pray that tonight... Under the conviction of your spirit, those who have not repented of their sins and come to Christ would do that by faith in Christ.